Please be seated. Good evening. I know it's toward the end of August, middle of August. I can't expect much. John chapter 2, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to chapter 2 and reading in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 30, uh, 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. And you have kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there uh, many days. And so that's as far as we'll get into John tonight in order to uh, allow room for uh, the Lord's Supper. If we take the whole passage, we won't have time. Some of you say, uh, since when did that become a consideration in your life on Sunday nights? And, and I say to you, mind your own business. I am under construction just like everybody else. Now we're told in verses 1 and 2 that uh, Jesus and his disciples had been invited to this wedding in the city of Cana. And, uh, and so here you have this wedding and again, it's very significant that they've been invited to it. The city of Cana is in the north of Israel, the Galilee region, Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, several miles outside of Nazareth from where Jesus was uh, raised. Cana uh, was a very, very small town and, uh, and uh, largely insignificant even for the small towns of, uh, of, of the Galilee. You notice, too, that Jesus' mother in uh, verse 1, Mary, is also at the wedding. She seems to have some level of responsibility associated uh, with this wedding because she gives instructions to the servants, and the servants uh, heed her uh, in instruction. So it seems as if she might be what we would call maybe a wedding coordinator or an assistant uh, in, uh, today in pulling off the wedding. And, uh, and when they run out of something or a problem arises, she feels compelled perhaps by virtue of that responsibility to at least endeavor to fix the problem that ha has happened. Or it might very well be 
that uh, she is in some way related to this young couple. And they married quite young in those days. Young couple being uh, getting married there might be good friends of Mary and Jesus or even family. Now Jesus and his disciples, they're uh, also, we're told, invited, uh, invited to it. And not only that they were invited, but that he accepted that uh, invitation. And uh, here he is invited to the wedding, and, and I think in any wedding he is uh, invited to, he's going uh, to attend it. One of the great lessons, and this is the first of the miracles uh, of Jesus here, and, and certainly the first miracle that Jesus um, is recorded for us among the seven miracles that John builds his gospel around, uh, and this miracle occurs at a wedding. So this miracle is a very, very strong endorsement on Jesus' part, both in His attendance, but also in the miracle that He performs in turning the water into wine, what He thinks about God, uh, the Father's uh, institution of marriage. He gets invited and, uh, and He in t- uh, attends that uh, wedding, and He'll certainly attend any wedding or any uh, marriage that he is invited uh, to be a part of. And of course, uh, is the, uh, the uh, institution of marriage was uh, instituted by God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, while everything is still good, everybody, there's no sin, there's no fallenness, there's no anything. And even in uh, the innocence and the perfection of that age, uh, no one was intended to be uh, involved in this institution of marriage without the involvement of God in, that, in, in marriage. It's His institution, and He desires to be uh, very much an active part in any marriage. And uh, all He has to do is just be invited. Uh, Lord, I, we invite you in this wedding ceremony. We invite you in our marriage now, so many decades perhaps, uh, after the wedding ceremony to bring your blessing and be a part of, of our, our marriage. And he will, he will gladly uh, uh, do that. Notice too that uh, Jesus is completely at ease in this setting. Now, a lot of settings we find him in the Bible He's very much um, um, about his business. Uh, he's about his business all the time and about his calling all of the time. But this isn't something where he has been invited in a, in a synagogue now uh, to speak or any of these kind of things. He is a guest at this, at this wedding. And you see him as a guest here. You see how relaxed he is in this social setting. He's not uncomfortable at all. He is not rigid uh, at all. He's just completely natural in, in, uh, in representing uh, himself and, and uh, God the Father in that social setting. And I think it speaks to the fact that we can be as well. And uh, I don't think we're being like him in life if we lose our capacity for joy in life. I think that sometimes, especially sometimes when we're brand new Christians, and uh, a lot of it is personality driven, but we can tend to equate, and certainly this was the attitude toward Christianity, and um, 
uh, not that many decades ago related to the United States of America in terms of Christian culture that uh, one's spirituality was gauged uh, 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 very, very much on, on the part of how uh, stern a person might be or how rigid or serious a, a person uh, might be. Well, you can only stay in fifth gear uh, so many hours in a day. Uh, especially when we're trying to be something that we can't uh, be something other than an expectation that we b- believe that God is bringing to our Christian life that He isn't bringing to our Christian life. And so here He is, and, and, uh, and He is thoroughly enjoying Himself, being with people, and uh, our spirituality is not directly proportional to our gloominess or to our stiffness or to our inability to enjoy ourselves and other people in, in social uh, uh, settings. Jesus spoke of it in terms of uh, this uh, characterized his life to such a degree that it became an accusation against him. How in such a, 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 how in such a sanctified way he was very relaxed in himself in these settings. Uh, the Son of Man, he said, came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. They accused him because he ate and drank at these events that he wasn't really serious about the things of God. Then John, in John chapter 15, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And so being joyful is spiritual uh, too. There's probably almost uh, no worse advertising for Christianity uh, than a joyless uh, Christian, or no worse misrepresentation of Jesus than, than to be a, a, a Christian who's devoid uh, of joy. Now, weddings in those days were a big deal. They're a big deal today. I'm glad we uh, are not uh, trying to foot the bill, my wife and I, uh, for any wedding today. I read sometimes these articles that come out for what a, the average wedding costs today. Um, no, I think I'll take uh, the brand new Lexus instead. I mean, when I see numbers like 35,000, 60,000 and more, uh, you know, a Jewish wedding, oh my, the expectations that can be there so, so often. And so they're a big deal today, but they were an even bigger deal back in, uh, in those days. And so it was a celebration. These are Jewish people, a celebration of God's institution of marriage. Someone that they loved and they cared about is now making a lifelong commitment to a, a, a man or to a woman, uh, their husband or their wife. And uh, they were so happy to come together, all of the extended family coming together to celebrate that, that union as a family. It was a, a great time for celebration and, and rejoicing and enjoying one another's company. Now, so the, the village, especially a village like Cana, would have just, a little tiny thing, would have just been buzzing with excitement. Everybody just couldn't wait until uh, the, the day approached. Maybe one of the biggest days of the year, short of the Jewish uh, religious holidays, would be a wedding like uh, this. 
So today we kind of have to put ourselves in their shoes. Today we can get a wedding invitation, and certainly we're excited uh, about being able to attend. It's an honor to be invited to a wedding, but we tend to be pretty busy the, uh, uh, these days. And uh, um, I don't know how people thought that the computer or all of these kind of things were going to make life simpler and quieter for us. They certainly haven't. Because now we've got to have hard copies, and then now we've got to have all this stuff over here too. So, but there's life. We're very busy people. There's all of the relationships in our life. There's the demands of the job and the vacations and hobbies and all these different things that we can be involved in and all the things. We could pick a newspaper up and read about what's happening this weekend in the community that we're in. And there's so many things that are happening that, that a, uh, uh, being invited to a wedding can almost become just one more thing that, that we need to do. But in, in those days, almost all social events revolved around the family. And a wedding was really something uh, special. And so the celebration uh, associated with a Jewish wedding would last a week. Now that's quite a wedding, isn't it? A week-long celebration. Uh, of a wedding and eating together, feasting together, and uh, drinking together and celebrating. They really got into it. Now, catastrophe comes upon this uh, particular wedding, and the catastrophe is that they ran out of wine. And this would have been more than, oh my, we ran out of wine, and uh, oh well, you know, what can you do? You do your best and commit the rest. But that's not how it was looked at uh, in, in those days. This would have been a a kind of a, um, an absolute, um, I'm trying to find the word for it, just an absolute embarrassment for the bride, for the groom, for the entire family on what is the biggest day in the life of that bride and, and that, that uh, uh, groom. And the reason is, is because uh, in that culture, hospitality was and is uh, uh, viewed so highly, it's taken so uh, seriously. When you invited somebody to your wedding or to your home for a meal, uh, to fail to provide them with hospitality would be an insult to them. It would certainly reflect very poorly upon the host and their concern for, uh, for hospitality. And on this great day, of course, on a wedding, everybody wants everything to be just perfect, and you want everybody to remember how wonderful the wedding was. It went off without a hitch. And then you certainly don't want to be reminded of being the bride and groom at the wedding where they ran out of wine. Because nobody would ever forget that in, in, uh, in the history of, of weddings in Jewish uh, culture. I, I'm inclined to believe that all of this reveals that the bride and the groom and their families were uh, of somewhat uh, modest means. They had probably done their best in what they could provide, uh, did what they could, hoped for the best, and then it didn't turn out to be enough. And we certainly see Jesus doing what he does continually in our lives, and that is bailing us out of situations in life that would otherwise be an embarrassment. We did the best we could. He knew we did the best that we could. But if this goes down in the history of our life without his intervention, it's always going to be remembered negatively related to us. And so he steps in uh, for them. 
Now Mary, in verse 3, informed Jesus of the situation, and she put it very, very simply because um, all you needed to do was say it simply in order for uh, the catastrophe to then explode in the mind of anyone that you would declare it to. And she says to Jesus, uh, very simply, they have no wine. And all of a sudden, the implications would uh, take over uh, for themselves. Now remember, there were no supermarkets in those days. They couldn't just head down to Beverages R Us or whatever it might be, and, and uh, you take care of it. So they run out of wine. She's probably in some kind of a position of responsibility where she uh, becomes aware of it before uh, the whole group becomes aware of it. And she knows there's only one person at this wedding that can fix this problem. And so she goes uh, to him and uh, she informs him that they have no wine. So she doesn't tell him what to do, but clearly she's hopeful that she, uh, he's going to do uh, something. She knows that there's no solution to what's happened here uh, apart from, from him. And so knowing what it is that, that he could do to take care of the problem. Now, Jesus responded in verse 4 with the words, A woman, what does your concern have to do with me, my hour is not yet uh, come. So he clearly understands that she is asking him for a miracle to solve this problem. And when Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, he's speaking of the, of the time mentioned in the book of Daniel when he would, uh, on the Sunday before uh, Easter, on Palm Sunday, make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He would allow people to worship him. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You remember time and time again, after he did miracles, the people would want to go ahead at that moment and make him uh, king at that time of Israel, and he would always slip away. He wouldn't let it happen, and, and with the words, my, because his time was not yet come. The day for him to be formally introduced to the nation of Israel as Messiah was going to be that day. And so she, Jesus is simply informing her that if I do what you're asking me uh, to do here, uh, then somehow that's going to intrude uh, upon that. And, and, uh, and the implications of him as Messiah in, in, uh, in turning the water to wine was going to be uh, a little bit earlier than he wanted, a little bit earlier than uh, God the Father wanted. And I think in this, Jesus is just reminding her uh, that in his life, all of his doing was to be directed by um, the Father. Now, when, when, if we have children and our children grow up, um, the, um, there's always a challenge that occurs because now there's new boundaries in the relationship. And so, especially when they grow up and, uh, and they marry, but even when they just grow up, now they're their own person. And so we're, depending on what kind of relationship we have with them or their personality, what they want to hear from us or not hear from us, um, now uh, we treat them as an adult and we just aren't able to say anything and everything that we, we want to them. And very often that 
understanding for us as parents that a change has occurred happens when uh, the son or the daughter pushes back. And then we realize, okay, all right, they're full grown now. I've done what I can. I'll do what I'm invited to do. And so if we think we go through a transition, imagine the transition that Mary had to go through. I mean, here she is, she's raising the son, the very son of God and her son, you know, the born into the world through her, and she knows what he can do, that there's nothing that he can't do, and yet she kind of pushes, he kind of pushes her back and says, no, the role that you had in my life as my mother now, that, is, that voice is not greater than my father's voice. It's my father's voice that, that, that uh, I could only turn this water into wine based upon his voice, no matter what it is that you would, you would want to, to, to say. Now, he's going to quietly perform the miracle uh, because it will be the father's will to do that, but the miracle will not accomplish this larger thing of of uh, revealing him to the nation of Israel formally as their Messiah. You notice that when, when Jesus uh, addresses her, uh, he addresses her as woman. And of course, you uh, want to recognize that it's not as harsh or as it comes across for us in English. Um, he's not being disrespected, uh, respectful toward her. So if you were to say, um, well, just try it. Just start calling your mother woman instead of mom and uh, see how that, uh, that goes. So there's a little bit in our culture, there's a distance. It's kind of a, a, a formal kind of way and it, and it puts distance between us, it would in this culture, but it didn't in those days. It would be like calling her, referring to her as lady. It was a, a title of of respect. And so by calling her woman instead of mother, he is very, very gently, but very, very firmly refocusing Mary away from the uh, uh, mother-son relationship that she has enjoyed with him uh, up to this point, and now to uh, the Savior uh, uh, Christian savior relationship. He, he does it with great respect, but, but he does it. And so he appreciates all of the, the confidence and the faith that she has in him, uh, but he reminds her that there's a proper time and there's a proper place for these kind of things. I have a friend who's in the pastorate and a uh, good friend, and he refers, he, he, he refers to his wife with that term. He calls her woman. And he always has, ever since they got to know each other and, and uh, married. He's French-Canadian, and uh, I don't know what that has to do with it, but um, there's got to be something weird that it's at, at the core of this, and I'm still trying to figure it out uh, 40 years later. And, uh, but he calls, he calls her woman, and it creates some problems it has for them in the church because uh, people think it's kind of talking down to his wife or something like that. They both recognize it as a term of affection. And so, um, husbands, as, as you leave tonight and head home, feel free to um, uh, your, refer to uh, your wife as woman and... Uh, and see how well that goes too for you in, in that.
So when he says to her, what does your concern have to do with me? It was uh, just a conversational phrase. It wasn't he's angry. What does, you know, what does your concern have to do with me? You could say it just as, as gently. What does your concern have to do uh, with me? But it's clear that Mary is stepping into territory that only belongs to God the Father in Jesus' life. And so he nudges her, her back and, uh, and, and makes her realize there's something bigger than just need behind uh, the miracles that I do. They have to be directed by the Father. Otherwise, Jesus could have done miracles from the moment he woke up till the moment he collapsed, exhausted at the end of the day, and then he would have gone down in history uh, merely as a great miracle worker. Because that, if that's how he handled miracles, that's all he would have done. He would have never got to his message. He would have never uh, got to the gospel. He would have never gotten to anything else. And that's what he would be pigeonholed for in history. So all of this was under the control uh, of, of the Father. And the miracles were chosen by God, performed by Jesus, in, in, uh, in order to uh, bear witness to to his message of salvation and, and for him being the Savior. And so even Mary was not to be the dominant voice in his earthly ministry in that way. Now Mary's response in verse uh, 5 is interesting. She's not offended, and you notice that. She's not at all, how dare you talk to me that way? Come here, grabs his ear and yanks him into the kitchen. Um, not offended at all. And uh, she received it, what he said, um, received it with complete submission, and uh, she recognized that he had the right to do what he felt was best. And, and, uh, but knowing his heart for the people, and uh, he told the, she told the servants, just be ready to do whatever he asks you to do, if he asks you to do anything. And so whatever he tells you, uh, do it. That's a, that statement of hers is probably the greatest single uh, sentence of counsel you can ever give anyone concerning their life and their ministry. The Christian life and Christian service is just a matter of hearing His voice and doing what He tells us to do. That's what makes it supernatural. It's a, but we fight against it. We like formulas because formulas allow us to have a Christian walk and to have a Christian service without the time-consuming baggage of maintaining a relationship with God. And it's very, very dangerous to fall into that. And so sometimes people will come, depending on what kind of a position you have in terms of ministry and uh, sometimes when somebody's new to ministry, they'll want someone to tell them every single thing they're supposed to uh, do. And, uh, and then all you're going to end up uh, doing is, ha is, is um, uh, conforming that person to come to you with every single problem and never force them to develop a relationship with Christ in ministry in which they can hear His voice and then do what He says to, uh, to do. And, uh, and so she just leaves it right with that. Just listen to him and do whatever, whatever it is that, uh, that he, he tells you to do. And, that's, and Christian service and Christianity is really no more complicated 
than that. And that's what makes it supernatural because you have, you have, just like in this miracle, you have no idea what he's going to tell you and me to do on a given day. A lot of it doesn't, it can, cannot make any sense at all. So there's the miracle that's here. And uh, in verses 6 and 7, Jesus instructs the servants. Now, so, okay, now he's talking to us. She told us to listen and do whatever he said. And, and he instructed them to fill the six stone uh, water pots. Uh, each one of them had a capacity of 20 to 30 uh, gallons each. So there's a total capacity of 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, that's a lot of wine. Uh, that he's going to supply this way. I don't know if this is like day five or day three or how big the group is, but he's going to supply a lot of wine for that, that wedding. And uh, the pots themselves were used for ceremonial cleansing that the Jews did. So before they would, uh, they would eat, uh, they would pour the water on their hands in a couple different directions to ceremonial clean the hands uh, from the defilement of the world, world, and then they would eat. And these pots have already been emptied related to that capacity, and so they, they sit empty uh, as well. So it must have seemed uh, curious, I think, to the servants. But Mary told them, and I mean, what uh, good would this do? We're going to fill these pots with, um, with water, and we're going to start to serve water. What is, uh, how can this solve the need that they've run out of wine? I mean, they don't, they don't know anything related to, uh, to this. And uh, so Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it. He didn't say whatever he says to you that makes sense to you, uh, do it. The first is to walk by faith. The f- second is to walk by sight. And, and we will find that the Lord uh, is always going to put, be pushing us to walking by faith. He will ask us to do things that don't look like they're going, they have anything to do with the need of the situation. And yet, uh, they uh, have an awful lot to do with it, and, uh, and time will uh, uh, prove that uh, to be so. The other thing is that Jesus could have very, very readily filled the pots with wine without the servants filling them with water first. I mean, why bother with the servants? I mean, if you can turn water into wine, you can put wine into the pots to begin with. But you see, another ministry principle is here. So very often, in our Christian life as well, and also in ministry, is that God will uh, expect us to do what we are able to do. And then He will do in that situation what only He can do. But if He did everything, what would we learn? I mean, what uh, undeveloped, unmature Christians and servants we would be if he just did everything. So he requires faith, and, and he pushes us to do what it is that we can do, and then he adds what he alone can to the situation. So the fact that he can do anything uh, isn't, a, a, isn't intended to nurture slothfulness on our part, related to service or ministry, or even obeying Him. He tells us to do our part, and then He'll be faithful to do His part. And you notice that they filled each pot to the brim. 
Now, there wasn't any room for any more water in those, in those pots and at the time that they contained only water. So their obedience is a, a full-to-the-brim obedience. And here's another lesson related to the passage. And that is that the, the blessing that we enjoy in Christian ministry and in our Christian uh, uh, life is directly proportional to the degree to which we obey Him and what He's called us to do. They could have filled it up halfway, uh, a quarter of a way, three quarters of a way. Their obedience was going to determine the degree of the miracle that was going to occur. And these guys, they, she said, whatever He says to you, do it, and they do it to the, to the maximum and, and uh, uh, all the way to... Uh, the brim, and then they're going to enjoy the water when it's turned to wine, enjoy the fullest uh, blessing and the fullest miracle uh, possible. He then uh, instructed them to draw out and take some uh, of uh, this to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was whoever was over uh, the, the catering service. Uh, over the food, over the wine, over the everything, the tables, the hospitality of the whole event. He's the guy that ramrodded all uh, of that. And so they obeyed him. They take the, wine, uh, the water they think is water. They take it to, uh, uh, to him. The reaction in verses 9 and 10 of the master of the feast. He tastes the water now that's been turned into wine. I wonder if the servants are going, oh no, we're taking this water to him. And... Uh, He's going to punch us for bringing water to him uh, when the need is for wine. And, uh, and so he tastes the water now that's turned into wine. And uh, he not only declared it to be wine, but to be uh, good wine. Remember, he doesn't know the source of the miracle. He doesn't know the source uh, of the wine. So he calls uh, for uh, the bridegroom, and then he declares to the bridegroom and uh, 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 concerning this whole reversal of how things have occurred here. He said, and this is kind of probably what he did for a living or uh, as a sideline where he uh, was the master of these kind of feasts and wedding feasts. And he said, listen, everyone I've ever been to they bring out the good stuff first, and then when people no longer, uh, they're slightly impaired, and they can't tell that now you're bringing out um, the Thunderbird, uh, then you, you put that uh, on them. And, uh, and, and that's the way the thing, the thing works. But you've brought uh, good wine out to be the beginning, and then you've saved the best wine uh, for last. And, and it is the exact opposite of anything that he had uh, ever experienced in, uh, in things. And so uh, here things, uh, they go uh, from uh, good to better in, in terms of Jesus and the miracle uh, that he does here. Of course, the, the model of the weddings that he was familiar with going from best to worst, that's a microcosm of the entire world. Everything is declining in the world. It all goes from good uh, to worse. That's just the way, that's the whole universe is going. It's winding down uh, in, in that way. And Jesus is the only one that can step in on all of that and take things from uh, good to even better. And that's what he does in our, in our lives. The Christian life, there's the, the old hymn or the old chorus, he gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. 
Oh, the love between my Lord and I. I keep falling in love with him over and over, over and over uh, again. Oh, where's the guitar here? Let me just get that. <laughs> and that's the truth of it. Anything associated with him just gets better and better and better. And then it goes from better to best because one day we're going to stand in heaven. And that's when it's going to be the best. So this is, a, this is something that the whole thing is flipped. And it's what... And it's what uh, he's the only one that can bring into a human life a reversal of that whole uh, way of doing things. That's why people talk about when people get older, they're going to get uh, bitter or they're going to get better. Uh, just because life, it pounds on you, it works on you, your body starts to fail, all these kind of, uh, of things. And if you don't have some part of your life that's operating opposite of that, uh, uh, then uh, you, you're gonna, you, you have nothing to withstand it and, and to keep you from going completely in that direction. And when Christ comes into our life, we have the most important part of our life that is always going uh, from good to better. He is uh, changing us into His, uh, into His glory uh, day by day, the Bible says. And that's where the Christian life uh, occurs. Not just in the wine at this wedding, but it's what uh, Jesus was intending to do and f uh, figuratively here related to uh, the Christian life. And so what Jesus does here in performing this miracle, a massive endorsement on the institution of marriage. I just read in the newspaper today in the United States of America, for the first time in our history, more children born out of wedlock than in wedlock. That's a problem. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody that's repented and all related to today or where you are today on things. But you cannot sustain that. Even as the richest country in the world that cannot be sustained because what happens to children in those kind of households, the demand that it ultimately brings upon a society and upon a nation uh, is it, it will bankrupt the richest of countries. But the worst thing about it is that, that people are then bringing children into the world independent of marriage, and they're missing the blessing that marriage is intended uh, to be, and, and what Jesus wants to be in a person's, uh, in a person's marriage. And, and you think about it, I mean, we think about if, if we're Christian and we're married, we think about what Jesus brings to our marriage. I mean, imagine uh, not only uh, not being uh, not married uh, or uh, being married but not a Christian but then not even being married and all of these responsibilities without being able to enjoy that blessing. It's just too much of a weight for people and the consequences are, are disastrous. You notice the effect of the miracle in uh, verse 11 that uh, upon the disciples and it says that they believed in him. It isn't that this is the first time they believed in him. They have believed in him and, and, 
and he uh, called them, as we saw last week, then to follow him, but their, their understanding of him was increasing, and this miracle increased their faith uh, in him. And so, following this wedding and this miracle, they all returned to Capernaum. Now, as we remember, as we stated, it, it, the aim of John's gospel is to bring uh, us as the readers to a faith in Jesus Christ uh, as the Son of God, and then, and then to recognize Him as the Son of God, as the Christ, in order that we might come uh, to possess everlasting life in our lives. And John, again, puts it this way at the end of uh, one chapter short of the end of the book, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so all of these uh, miracles, the, the uh, gospel according to John built around the seven I am statements of Jesus, the seven miracles that John chooses by the Holy Spirit uh, of, of uh, Jesus. And here we have the record of the first of those seven miracles. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this seems like an odd miracle for uh, John to start with of the seven other miracle, uh, six other miracles that he's going to mention in, in the gospel. Which, and those miracles include the healing of the official son, the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, the feeding of the 5,000 with the uh, five loaves and the two fish, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. And if it were me, and, I, and here I speak reverently, I might have started with a healing. I'm going to start with the first miracle and get this thing off with some kind of momentum. I'd probably start with a healing, or I'd probably start with Jesus raising somebody from the dead. But John doesn't do that. So there has to be something about this miracle that reveals Jesus' glory, verse 11, in a, in a powerful way and in a needed way. Now, now, while I'm talking nonsense, if I were in charge of all of this, I would have had Jesus begin his public ministry in Jerusalem, outside of the entrance gates of the temple, and have him raise a thousand people uh, from the dead uh, uh, that are buried on the Mount of Olives right across uh, the way. I mean, let's, let's get people's attention. Let's get some headlines uh, uh, around here. And instead, what, what he does is he just does this, he begins all of it with this comparatively very small miracle done at a private wedding in a very uh, obscure town in Galilee. They're out in the spiritual boonies in, in Cana. So again, there has to be something about this miracle that reveals Jesus' glory and his power in a needed way. Now, we know it reveals his, his authority and his power over nature. So it does that because he turns water into wine, and you have to have authority uh, over nature in order to, uh, to do that. It may seem like a small uh, miracle, uh, but in, 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 as if um, we're so conversant with miracles in our lives. But, but, I mean, in terms of the miracles that, that he can do, 
And, uh, and, and so, of course, I'm going to put my faith in him as the Christ and as the Son of God based upon his power and authority over uh, nature as a result, just like John intends the gospel to do. But I would, I would contend that this isn't the sole or maybe not even the supreme manifestation of his glory in this scene, but that the supreme manifestation of his glory in this scene is what is revealed uh, about his heart. His love for people, his concern for our needs as human beings, and uh, his concern for our joy. So he manifests his power over nature here, yes, but the, maybe the bigger revelation is why he did it. Now, you, you would expect the Messiah, the Son of God, to have great power, but here we learn that he not only has great power, but we, earn, we learn that he is equally great in his love. You put yourself in, in the position of everyone that's at that wedding or everyone that's ever going to hear about that miracle that Jesus did, did at that wedding uh, down through, uh, through the years. And uh, they're aware of all of the expectations of the preparation related uh, to the, the, the meal and the, the wine and everything. Uh, the desire that everybody that's uh, been invited is going to have a great time in the celebration of a lifetime for the bride and the groom. And, and, and in fact, uh, Morris in his commentary uh, states, and I wasn't able to look up his sources on it, but states that in the ancient world to run out of wine or refreshment in the wedding uh, celebration was uh, uh, grounds for a legal action. That's how serious this, all of this was taken. And so uh, here you put yourself in the shoes of those that are at that, that wedding and uh, then later on, the whole thing goes off without a hitch. And later on, they learn about the miracle. And of course, they're going to marvel at the miracle of the water being made uh, into uh, wine. But I think immediately the second thought would be the marveling at how Jesus, without drawing any attention to, to himself at all in that situation, uh, he, what he did for this couple, what he did for their loved ones in order that he might bail this thing out and that this thing, they, they might be able to enjoy their life and this major event without any kind of, of distraction uh, at all and how he worked to avoid uh, a catastrophe that they, their reputations might not have ever recovered from for the rest of their lives. And then they would have marveled not only at the greatness of his power, but at the greatness of his love. It is interesting that in the Bible that wine is repeatedly used as a symbol of joy. In Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all of the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God and do not mourn or weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way and eat the fat and drink the sweet, speaking of wine, 
and send portions to those uh, for whom nothing has been prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites quieted the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words which were declared uh, to them. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple during his reign, uh, they made sacrifices to the Lord, offered burnt offerings to the Lord. On the next day, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all of Israel. And so they ate and drank uh, before the Lord with great gladness uh, on that day. Psalm 104, verse 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man. And then very, very familiarly to us, Psalm 23, 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and uh, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And so we might be inclined to compare this miracle uh, negatively with the later ones in which Jesus heals people of all of their diseases and he raises them from the dead and so forth. But we might remember that while disease and death represents an absolute catastrophic loss in life, so does the loss of joy in the life of a child of God. The ability to enjoy life the ability to enjoy the events of life, the ability to enjoy the daily of life, to enjoy the knowledge that God uh, loves me and He loves us, the joy of knowing that even when we try our best to figure out how much wine is going to be needed in this situation or how what we're supposed to do in a given situation uh, in life, whatever the equivalent is for each of our lives, that when we fall short, He's always going to be there to cover us and to spare us of, of any embarrassment. And so what good would it be to be raised from the dead back into a joyless life? What good would it be to be made healthy and whole in body in a joyless world or to then uh, continue to live a joyless life? And you notice that Jesus provided them with a supply of wine, joy, that they couldn't even begin to hope to exhaust in the course of, of uh, that, that celebration. And in the miracle of our spiritual birth, Jesus has provided us with an inexhaustible source of joy in our lives. Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy, my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Galatians chapter 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. So we ask ourselves tonight, have I lost my joy? Have I settled into a joyless Christian life, a joyless Christian existence? 
And that would be cat a catastrophic a, a loss for anybody in the whole world to find themselves in that, that kind of a place, but certainly uh, in the life of a Christian because we've been provided with such inexhaustible causes for joy by God himself. Maybe you've been reading since the COVID thing has happened and even before that, but the, the number, the, the statistics that are being given now for the number of people in the United States of America who not only know no joy in their life, they know no happiness. We live in a country in which people are living day to day to day, not only without joy, but without a capacity for being happy. That's not an existence. I mean, that's not a life. That's, that's not even a, a, a good uh, existence. And I think it's interesting to realize that yet today, and depending on, on who you read, it is always uh, the groom in his family that provides the wine for a Jewish wedding. And it certainly was the responsibility of this bridegroom because as soon as the master of the feast tasted of the wine, who did he call over to speak to him about the quality of the wine? The bridegroom. Because that was his responsibility, to bring joy, to bring wine to supply it uh, to uh, the wedding. And so the bridegroom was commended in, in all of this. And so Jesus, as our bride, uh, our groom, is the source of our joy in our being united to him as the bride of Christ. And so in instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus made wine, interestingly enough, the symbol of his blood. And, and, and that's to say, among many other things, that he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary, along with his burial and his resurrection, to provide us with unending causes for joy in our lives as, as Christians. Forgiveness of sins. Think about that. What if you did not have forgiveness of your sins and you couldn't have those things that pop into your mind from your past and immediately say, Lord, you died to forgive me of that sin. I'm not going to rummage through that. I give that to you and you take care of it. But we'd live, live I certainly would, a life of terrible, terrible condemnation, much less absent of any, any joy. And, and we have the joy of freedom from guilt, freedom from the power of sin. We live every day with the hope of heaven, an absolute confidence concerning heaven, the joy of a relationship with God, the joy of knowing that God loves us and, and the faithfulness of God to us. And if we've lost our joy as Christians tonight here, then to just simply consider all of the causes for joy that Jesus has brought into our lives as we partake of the symbols of his body and his blood, we consider his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then ask him to restore our joy, and then allow him to do it. And to just say to God, God, I have lost my joy. I can't tell you the last time I felt that emotion in my life. And he knows it. It's just a matter of us getting our attention that we're living a, um, an inferior Christian life. And to say, Lord, I don't want to invest in this any longer. Would you now restore uh, my joy to me? And I know, uh, and to say to him, Lord, I know that the reason that I've lost my joy is because I have made, uh, endeavored to make so many other things than you and the things of you. 
the source of my joy in life, and all of them have let me down. And now I realize the great mistake that I've made. Only you can provide that in my life. And so please provide that uh, in, uh, back into my life and the joy of salvation, the joy of knowing you. When you stop and you think about what we have been through, people all over the world, but here in the United States as well in the last few years, you think about COVID. I mean, you remember, they're letting people in the store and you could only get so much of this and that. Nobody knew where this was going to go. Nobody knew where this was going to go. And those long weeks and months of wondering what's going to happen here on, on all of this. And then comes along with the vaccines and people's jobs being held over their head and all of the pressure and all of these kind of things that, that were going on. Four years of the Trump presidency, which has, was an absolute war within our culture. And, uh, and then now another presidency that is an absolute war for completely different reasons. A recession, inflation, all of these things. And just talking on a national level, not even talking about what we deal with on our own individual lives. There used to be a day when things changed very slowly in the United States of America, and they kind of kept things pretty steady, and all you had to do was take care of your own life. Now we're aware of all of these other things, plus our own lives. And, and all of this stuff is cumulative. It isn't just like, oh yeah, that, we're all done with that, and there's no... A residual effect upon our lives and we can find ourselves on a night like this sitting here and then to realize somewhere along this path I don't know where but I've lost my joy and to be able to sit here tonight as we're led in worship and to ask the Lord to restore that back to our lives uh, uh, just as it characterized the life of Jesus himself and so if the worship team will come forward now and the men will come forward we will serve the Lord's Supper. They will pass the bread and the cup out to you in a single container and just hold on to it and we'll partake of the bread together and then we'll partake of the cup together.